everyone, and welcome to Sparks, 538 Science Podcast, where we read interesting science writing and then talk about the big ideas behind it. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and today we'll be talking about DNA and genetic genealogy through the lens of the social life of DNA by Alondra Nelson. So our conversation on this podcast usually involves some 538 science staff members talking back and forth amongst ourselves, but today we have a special guest. We're welcoming Kim Tallbear, an associate professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, who wrote a book titled Native American DNA. Welcome, Kim. Hi, nice to be here. Great. And on our side at 538, we have senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker. So let's start with a quick synopsis of the social life of DNA. Maggie, you want to give us that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a book about the way that average people experience technology outside the laboratory. And specifically, it's about the ways that African-American communities have used the genetics revolution of the last 20 years to connect themselves with each other and with their families past before the slave trade ripped apart families and obscured ethnic origins. So Nelson is a professor of sociology, and she basically went and embedded herself in these groups of amateur genealogists to learn about how African-Americans are taking the science of DNA, which, you know, as we all know, is something that's really been wielded as a weapon against them over the years and using it to their own ends. But It's also not purely a rah-rah story because part of what Nelson finds is these people dealing with this question of how much trust you can actually put in what DNA tells us. And she finds that there's a lot of this DNA analysis and things that it can't tell you about who you are and where you come from. And I think that's pretty important given that societally, we tend to treat DNA like it's this kind of oracle of unquestionable truth. And her book really throws a lot of that idea into question. Right. So one of the things that comes up that we've talked about is that relationship between human beings and DNA and how they understand it. Um, And one of the things, as you mentioned, Maggie, is that, you know, Within certain within people, certain sets of the population, within a, lot, a large part of the science establishment, in DNA is this magical thing that is that contains all kinds of data and tells us all of this information. But are there risks associated with treating it that way and thinking of it that way? I think that Nelson really starts to kind of outline this idea that there might be risks associated with that, and. She also sort of finds people skeptical of that idea and maybe more skeptical than I think she expected them to be going in. But I'm also really curious about hearing Dr. Talberg's perspective on this, because I know that from a little bit that I've read about your book, this is something that you've kind of come back to a few times as well, is this risk of assuming that DNA has these kind of magic truth powers. Right. You know, so... Uh, you're asking about the differences between, say, Native American uh, perspectives on DNA and genealogy versus African American perspectives. Um, I, you know, that's that. That might be a really good place to start. I think I'm also curious about, uh, from your perspective in your research, what we risk by trusting DNA to always tell us the truth. Like, where where can that lead us astray? What are the benefits of that? What are the risks of that? Right. So I think there are. Uh, sort of different issues for Native Americans versus African Americans, as I understand it. And I haven't actually interacted with a lot of African American genealogists and DNA test takers. 
Um, but I do know Alondra Nelson's work, and I know Rick Kittles. I know a lot of other African-American scholars who do work in those communities. And, you know, because of the Middle Passage and the slave trade, there's a real deep and important investment, I think, that black Americans have in using DNA testing to fill in those historical gaps. And so, but for Native Americans, um, we actually, Native American people who are affiliated with tribal communities in the U.S., as far as I can tell, there's been very little engagement uh, with DNA testing. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think, yes, one, um, the ethics of interacting not only with DNA testing, but being the subjects of genetic research have been, has been really problematic for indigenous communities in the United States. There's a long history and, and very regular Native American everyday people, people without a lot of higher education, understand the history of racial biology and the way that our people have been experimented on. I mean, there is really widespread knowledge about those things, and we are we tend to be leery of being the objects of research. Um the other thing is that there, we don't have the same use for DNA testing that I think a lot of other Americans have. So because we know that our ancestry goes back on this co uh, continent for millennia, right? Um, that's not the kind of DNA testing that we use. And the ways that we determine tribal belonging don't have anything to do with tracing your ancestry to a founding ancestor. They have a lot to do with uh, being born to tribal members, with tracing your ancestry back say only 100 or 150 years to these base roles that were developed in the late 19th and early 20th century when the United States government was corralling natives on reservations and then suddenly needed a list of Indians in order to manage our ancestors. So we have we do use DNA testing for that, but it's parentage testing, and, and that's often on a case-by-case -case basis. It's largely still a documentary project uh, to trace our ancestry you know, back a few generations and then deal with enrollment or membership. So it's a really different uh, set of identity questions that we have, I think, than a lot of other Americans have who turn to genetic ancestry testing. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's also worth noting that uh, the way we do this podcast is, well, we have this discussion and then we'll have a second part where we talk to the author. So we'll also have Alondra Nelson coming on uh, next week to talk about some of these issues as well. Because it is really interesting to think about, you know, the way maybe a, the way a white person might think of genetic testing, the way African-American people in, in, Dr., or in Dr. Nelson's work think about genetic testing, and then also when you have indigenous groups which think about it and approach it and, and use it in very different ways. It's really fascinating. Right. It is because our histories and the ways that we our identities are constructed are deeply entangled, but there are, are also important differences. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I, I think is kind of an interesting example of how Science exists not just purely as science, right? Like uh, this is something that has been coming up a lot in a lot of the discussions that have been around the idea of doing a march on Washington here in the U.S. of scientists going and protesting some of the changes in the Trump administration. A lot of the scientists have been having this debate about, you know, is science a social thing? Is science just, you know, does it exist outside of culture? Does it exist outside of politics? Or is it wrapped up in those things so much that you can't untangle it? There's a pretty good reason to think that science always has these cultural and social and political tangles to it. Because even something as, you know, seemingly data-driven as 
genetic analysis has really different meanings depending on where you're coming from. Right. I think, you know, for, I mean, African-Americans know this, Native Americans know this, uh, women have been clearer about this. Anybody who's been a marginalized subject, who's been the object of research, scientific research, that is usually, let's be clear, done by straight white males, <laughs> knows that science is always already embedded in the political. And so I, I've actually been tweeting about that. It cracks me up that these scientists are are saying, oh, my gosh, we need to get politically active. Yeah, thanks. You should have done that a long time ago. I welcome them getting more politically active. Yeah. Well, Blythe was telling me that you had kind of an interesting experience in terms of, you know, who does the studying that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, because you... Right, those genetic genealogists? Yeah, because yeah. uh, go ahead and talk, Blythe, because you... You're the one who actually talked to Dr. Tolkien yeah, about just, this before. Right. Yeah. We talked about um, the, as you were doing your research for your book, the genetic genealogists you encountered in a lot of online communities. And I'd love to hear more about that in terms of um, how those people reacted to being the subjects of research and observation. Right. Well, I was actually interacting with one important online community, and it's it ended up being such an amazing educational experience, and it made me realize uh, very much how different subjects, depending on their racial and class identity, engage with these technologies differently. So I ended up joining a listserv back in 2003, I think, when I was doing the research for my dissertation, and I was on that listserv through 2005 when I finished the dissertation. And what I went into that listserv really naive. I thought, okay, all these people... I thought, first of all, I thought the listserv would be racially diverse. Um, it didn't have a, a racial kind of identity category to it or anything like that. Um, but it ended up being largely, overwhelmingly uh, self-identified white people. They might call themselves WASPs or European Americans or whatever term they used. But what became clear to me was that uh, people who are looking for markers in certain parts of the world, you know, they, they tend up to they tend to be racially identified in certain ways. So I learned very quickly that it makes sense, made sense that it was a bunch of white people on that listserv because they were largely looking for European ancestry versus if you go over to African Ancestry and Rick Kittle's company and his online uh, services, it tended to be largely African-Americans looking for markers on the continent of Africa. So I ended up in the middle of this uh, bunch of white people. And if you know genealogy, even absent genetics, um, there, a lot of retired people tend to do this because it's incredibly time consuming and people become really, really good meticulous researchers. So it was populated by a bunch of old white people. It was fascinating. So, but I expected many of them, they were also in addition to looking for a European ancestry, they were looking for Native American ancestry. Now they were never looking for recent African ancestry. Of course, all of us have African ancestry going back, you know, tens of thousands of years. So it was very, you, I began, and I'm a race scholar, so I noticed the, ra the race constructions very quickly here. So it was really interesting how they could have no um, problem with their identity as white people or European Americans. They were very comfortable in that identity, unlike other people who have written me emails and come to my talks. They weren't looking to racially shift into a Native American identity, even if they found a little bit of Native American heritage through their DNA. Um, and so they, what I found was they were largely highly educated people. Many of them had been trained in STEM fields. Uh, they followed the science uh, very closely. They read scientific articles. They went to these national gen genetic genealogy meetings. Some of them had relationships with the DNA testing companies. They were researchers uh, themselves. And I learned a lot from them about the science. And then the scientists from some of these companies were in regular conversation with them talking about new iterations of tests with new panels of markers and things like that. And so 
Um, my expectations were, were, uh, what happened was vastly different than my expectations. It was a really interesting learning experience. The The other thing that was really funny, though, uh, I mean, I was on this listserv all day, every day for a couple of years. It was just such a fascinating, and it, that was my virtual ethnography, my field work, if you will. Um, they didn't like being studied. When they found out, when, it, when I first joined the listserv, people were interested and you would chat back and forth all day. But when they found out that I was an anthropologist of science, that I was studying them as research subjects, and I was not simply a DNA test taker, some people got pretty upset. And I, but I stayed in the conversation. It was really hard because people were really giving me a hard time. And they, and what it came down to was two things. They didn't like being studied. They felt like my project uh, stood to undermine their own work and their way of life. And it, it's, it perhaps would make them look ridiculous. Um, they felt like my anthropology of science was going to do nothing for them. So why should they participate in my research and be my research subjects? They also, uh, were really, really critical of uh, social science, social science theory and humanities language. And so I ended up giving a talk at Stanford on this, this topic. And somebody came and there were quotes that were taken from my talk, uh, talking about genetic fetishism. And I got raked over the coals for having this obscure, uh, social theory language and, and how ridiculous was it that I was talking like that. These are people who tolerate so much uh, complex language if it has to do with genetics. So number one, they didn't like being studied as white people. Number two, uh, they were scientific chauvinists who thought that other forms of knowledge were less than. So uh, in the end, I it was really interesting to, to me. I said, yeah, now you know how Native Americans feel. The, all of the research that has produced the DNA test that you consume was built on the was done on the backs of indigenous people under ethical regimes that we no longer consider ethical and none of that has done anything for us in fact it has further harmed us so you know i'm turning the tables and welcome to our world it was it was fascinating that is such an interesting experience and it's and it is different from what happens in nelson's book where she's kind of welcomed into these communities as sort of a fellow traveler as somebody else who is also curious about where her you know, ethnic ancestry came from. And I think it's also interesting in that there's a lot of people who I don't think realize that there are scientists who study other scientists. And whenever I have encountered that, the scientists are, if not uncomfortable in the ways you describe, uncomfortable in a more comic way where they're kind of like, oh yeah, we have a sociologist who's following us around. He, he's like our pet now. And that, <laughs> that just strikes me as really interesting because when I was thinking about that, it kind of threw into stark relief, this difference between like what we normalize in terms of different racial, different professional, different, uh, um, economic groups, power groups, relationship to science, that it seems perfectly normal to have somebody going and studying how a Native American community works. And there is this kind of funny aspect about studying scientists because we give them so much power. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of reminds me of something else that came up a lot throughout both Nelson's book and then I think I believe also in your work, Dr. Talbert, is the idea of, of consent and science. Um, 
you know, obviously, if you're talking about people who are choosing to take their own test, their own DNA to figure out their own roots, the root seekers, as they're called throughout the social life of DNA. I mean, those are people who are feeling who are very empowered to find their own ancestors and create and find those links back to a period before slavery, back to the African continent and different parts of and different parts of that. I mean, it was really it's really interesting to see this contrast between, you know, feeling feeling like I have this amazing tool that tells me so much about about my family and about myself that really helps me feel connected to a time before, you know, my ancestors were were enslaved by people on you know, on the American continent. And then also, you know, on the flip side of that, you have all these other different issues in terms of historical consent and um, the treatment of, of both, you know, African-American populations in the U.S. in science and the treatment of Native populations. So there's this empowering thread that comes through in this discussion of, of you know, examining one's own DNA and linking it back to one's own family and through generations. Right, right. And they're not thought of as cultural beings. I mean, I often say this in talks. I'm not trying to be provocative necessarily, but I'm trying to get people to think. I say, I study white men. You know, not all scientists are white men, but I but I make the point like that, right? Bec- and why not? They've spent a long time studying us and they continue to study us and Knowledge is power. So um, it, I think it's important for, for Native people, for African Americans, for other marginalized people to gaze back. Um, and so it's it's both, I do it both to gain knowledge, but I also do it as a performative act to, to kind of, as you say, sh- throw into stark relief what people often don't notice about those power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, there was also a story in the book oh, about um, author Louise Erdrich. I believe, Maggie, you brought that up, and she yeah. decided decided not to be tested but Maggie, did you want to talk a little bit about that, like the conclusion that, that Louise made in the book? Yeah, Louise Erdrich decided not to be tested because she told uh, you know, she told them that their, her community understood their DNA to be communal property and not something that was individually owned. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about the idea of DNA as something that belongs to people other than yourself, and particularly this idea that, you know, if you get tested for DNA and you make this choice about having someone study you, and maybe you get nothing but good benefits from that, but your DNA is also going into this database that you kind of lose power over that in some ways, and that could be used against other people from your community in ways you can't anticipate. I think in one time, at one point, um, some of Kittle's research. We should, we should pause really quick and, and say who Kittle's oh, yeah, is. Sorry, am I getting off? No, no, no. I just want to say who Kittle's is. I, I know um, Dr. Tallbear Tal mentioned him too. He is the one who who started this African ancestry company uh, through which a lot of African-Americans, particularly in the book and then elsewhere, obviously out in the world, have examined and explored their own ancestry. So I just wanted to be clear that we right. told people who he was. Yeah. So at, like, at one point, he is working with somebody who he ends up breaking with because this person decides to go and do research that is meant to kind of aid forensic investigation. And Kittle saw that as working against native, excuse me, working against African-American communities rather than for them. And I wondered about that because it also, you know, those are a lot of individual African-Americans who contributed to Kittle's work. And 
also, though, contributed to the work of this other guy. Yeah, well, good good for Rick Kittles. I'm glad he did that. Those forensic databases are dangerous for people of color. African-Americans and Native Americans are disproportionately incarcerated and disproportionately in the so-called uh, criminal justice system. So yeah, it, that's a, it's a real concern. I'm curious about sort of how you see that line between your DNA is something that you personally own and your DNA is something that is part of your community and is part of like what connects you to other people and risks and benefits that you all share. Right. There are some special, I think, um, aspects of that for Native Americans, but I, for genetic genealogists in general, they also know even within extended families that uh, they may find things about their ancestry that their family members don't necessarily want to know. So I know on that online list survey study, they do have meaningful conversations about, you know, one person may want to know something and somebody else may not. And so th- th- at that level, this is a question that affects a lot of people who do DNA testing. But in terms of Louise Erdrich's response, um, yes, a lot of indigenous communities do talk about their their uh, DNA as communal property, because, you know, if you look at a, a tribe in the U.S. or a First Nation in Canada, these are communities that are extended biological relations. So in one sense, a tribe is an extended family. It's also a political entity in a broader community. But but we are special in that way that we are a big extended family that has governmental authority. Um, and so the the other aspect of that, besides feeling that that it's it belongs to everybody, and it's not necessarily for one person to go take it out, into the world is the fact, I think you brought this up, we do not have indigenous communities that are controlling the databases, that are controlling the samples, and a lot of the ethical violations that have occurred that we get concerned about our our researchers having uh, stewardship property rights over uh, the, the DNA and the samples and the data of our relatives and ancestors and doing research that we're not necessarily interested in having done, or they also gain those samples, uh, especially before the 1990s in ways that we just don't find ethical. So uh, I think if indigenous communities. And if we had indigenous scientists, you know, Rick Kittles, it's fascinating to me. And I I get why African American researcher, genetic genealogists trust him more, you know, he, he he's an insider in some ways, right. Um, And if we had a high profile indigenous geneticist like that, who was doing that kind of work, it's very possible that we would get more indigenous people who might be willing to participate in research. But but for the most part, we don't have that yet. The geneticists we have are really young, uh, just graduating. Eventually, maybe we'll have a, a Rick Kittles in, in uh, among Indigenous scientists. In in Dr. Nelson's book, they talk about the African burial ground in Manhattan that was a subject of a lot of controversy in the early 90s. Basically, the surveyors were, were looking to do construction. They came across this graveyard from 1600s, 1700s, uh, and it was pre- I think it was pretty much all African African people, people who had been, many of whom had been slaves, um, and then African Americans. I'm not sure how many generations you know they found in it, but it was very controversial because of the tactics that were used to to excavate it. There were accusations of them being sloppy, and um, the the research was initially done at a school in New York, and there were concerns about how it was being done, how the remains of people were being handled, and eventually, um, you know, an African American scientist was took over the project and the. The study of the of the bones and the remains were moved to Howard University, historically black university in Washington. And it really was the result of a lot of public outcry. I mean, people said, you know, we don't feel as though these these human beings remains are being treated with respect. We don't feel as though this 
burial ground is being treated as sacred ground. And there was a lot of controversy in, in, until it was put in, into the hands of people who it seemed like had a, a different sort of attitude toward toward the science, not just the science, but also just the, the people who were buried there. And it was a really interesting story that that Nelson tells and Kittles was involved in some of that research, which is also how he ended up, you know, for start deciding to start African ancestry. So it was a really interesting story. Yeah. I know a lot of the, the people you're talking about and I've heard them talk about the African burial ground, but I haven't actually read that account. It's really um, quite moving to me actually, because it, uh, it, it reminds me of the way that, that indigenous communities deal with remains, right? I mean, these are human beings and they have a, a life force in them that we don't view as having passed with death. And if you look at the, the federal guidelines around research ethics, you don't actually have to do human subjects uh, ethical review when you're dealing with remains as if human remains are no longer human, as if they're just these completely inanimate uh, non-human objects. When I learned that, it was I was like, that is just so Eurocentric, right? Like indigenous people, it, we just don't look at it that way, and and we do have a feeling about treating human remains with in a certain way. There's also the, that painful history, probably around the African burial ground. So yeah, I'm really uh, happy to hear that that all happened, and that you know they went to a historically black college. I think that's that it must have been a really um, kind of important moment, uh, a spiritual moment, an ethical moment for the people involved. I was really surprised. Like I had never heard that the DNA work around the African burial ground that was done at Howard and that Kittles was involved in. I didn't realize that that was some of the first major DNA analysis research that had been done on human remains. Uh, that was something that, you know, I just, I had never learned. And it was a part of scientific history that had kind of been left out of how I learned about DNA analysis when I was in school, which I think is another one of those examples of the way that we kind of segregate science, where you only hear about, you know, if you are a white person in the sciences, what you hear about is the sciences that have primarily involved white people. And you don't hear about things like the African burial ground research until you start looking at things through, I guess, a more inclusive lens. So I had one thought that came up when we were talking about, you know, we, we had kind of talked about how there's this African ancestry database that Rick Kittles is in charge of. And, you know, a lot of people are really familiar with like 23andMe, which there have been stories done about how not racially diverse their database is, that it does skew heavily towards uh, towards people of European ancestry. And it occurred to me that we're putting together these DNA databases that people are using for ancestry work that are really segregated. And I, I don't know if that, I don't know like what, meaning that would end up having for the science that comes out of these things. Um, particularly if, you know, as you're talking about, Dr. Talbert, there aren't a lot of Native Americans who are particularly interested in being a part of these uh, ancestry research programs. So they aren't really contributing their DNA to this stuff either. It seems like what you end up getting is these highly segregated databases that can only really tell you about your ancestry in one narrow sliver of what there might be. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think also because, you know, African Americans, Native Americans, when we do engage with science, uh, many of us are explicitly political about that. I mean, if you've seen Rick Kittles give presentations, he opens up with a with a, a graph of a slave ship. And he shows how tightly packed those bodies were. He talks about the the percentage of people who didn't make it. You know, that's pretty hardcore. And that's how he starts out his scientific talks. It's really important, you know, to, to put this kind of science in context. And Indigenous people will also provide a, a historical context uh, for this research as well. And you just can't get away from it. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that is a really kind of an important difference. I think the sciences as well, you know, there's still the natural sciences are still trying to uh, distill the politics uh, from their work. So you often don't hear about, say, histories of racial biology and racial science that gets distilled from the from the things that are taught to students now because those are considered failures or bad science or something whereas I feel like in the social sciences and humanities we we do a little bit better job of talking about the things that went bad in our discipline so our, our students learn about those political histories so I, I to get back on this other thing too I actually I I'd like to work with critical scientists, you know, people like Rick Kittles and others who are not trying to abstract politics from their work, who are being real about those those politicized histories. I think that's better science. So um, and I found a lot of people of color, feminist scientists and others who are more willing to be explicit about the histories of politics in their fields. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was wondering, reading the book, whether anybody had had done a lot of comparative, you know, what what does this say I am? What does this other thing say I am? And how do they differ? Yeah, I have a graduate student um, at still at the University of Texas who did DNA tests. He's an ancient DNA guy, and he did a DNA test with a couple of different companies. He's a white guy, but he knows he has some native ancestry. And he got radically different uh, results from those two companies. And that's based on their different panels of markers, right? So this, this is what happens. Um, and it's why people go shop around to different companies to both out of curiosity to see what their different test results will say. But, you know, sometimes they might do that in order to get the result they want, too. Well, and not only that, too, one thing that's mentioned in, in the social life of DNA is that there's a matrilineal test and a petrilineal test. So a lot of people took both a matrilineal and a patrilineal and sometimes, and, you know, those are different results and, and feel more connected to one, uh, to one result over another. And I think that was really interesting, too, um, because people sort of are either already felt connected to a certain either a certain tribe or a certain nation um, within Africa or for whatever other reasons they may have the the oral history uh, or the family history on one side is better. So they already sort of knew some of it on one side and not the other. But it was really interesting to see how people how people then connected differently. Well, I, the genetic genealogists on that listserv that I was online with, they all took many different tests because they, they themselves were researchers. They, they weren't just genealogy. I mean, genealogy is research, but they weren't just doing that anymore. They were really kind of, in a sense, becoming um, a- amateur but highly skilled DNA researchers. So, yeah, I've, I've run into a lot of people that do that, take multiple tests. It, what Blythe just brought up kind of reminded me of how in the book, there's this moment where a woman who had been doing her family's genealogy, you know, based on sort of more traditional ways of doing genealogy, had kind of come to this conclusion that they had some kind of relationship to the Khoisan people. And she went in and got her her matric clan, I think it was, done from African ancestry, and that didn't turn up at all. It ended up being a completely different ethnic group and a completely different part of Africa. 
And she felt really disappointed and had this moment of kind of trying to readjust her identity of who she saw herself as, which I guess goes back to that Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot thing also, where she kind of had the same experience. But that moment sort of made me think about some of the stuff we've been talking about, about how these genetic results have different meanings for different populations based on culture and society and history and how they've been treated by power structures. Because the, you know, there's disappointment and then there are legal implications. And it seems like you were talking earlier about how, you know, when you're talking about tribal enrollment, there are bigger legal implications, I would assume, for not having the genetic ancestry you thought you had, which would be different from what, you know, African-Americans with that experience were having in this book and would be different from what I would experience if I were to suddenly find out that I weren't, wasn't as German as I think I am. You know, like there's a very different result that can happen when your ancestry has been politicized and legalized. Yeah, I, well, this is why Native American communities are, are, they use parentage tests when they do DNA testing as part of tribal enrollment, and they don't use the genetic ancestry test, because again, those are pointing back to some ancient unnamed ancestor on a, you know, this continent or another one. But yeah, the parentage tests can be a little bit dicey. Um, many tribes tend to use them on a case-by-case basis, say if parentage is in question, and it's usually paternity, um, and you need the, the biological father's documentation to enroll a child in a tribe then you would do a paternity test and say, okay, yes, he is the bio dad. We can now use his documentation to enroll that child. But sometimes um, some tribes, I think it's a minority, but there are some that will do across the membership parentage testing who are trying to uh, manage their roles in much tighter ways. And when you go in and you test an entire population, whether it's a room full of people or 5,000 people in a tribe, and you do a parentage test on everybody, you're going to find misattributed paternity. And and so, so if you find that uh, somewhere along the line, you might end up, say it was two generations back, you know, somebody's grandfather isn't really their biological grandfather and, and um, enrollment of all the offspring went through him, say the wife was non-native. Uh, suddenly that whole branch of the family can get thrown off the tribal roles. That has happened. It's, I, I just, I, I get really dismayed when tribes do that kind of parentage testing. It, it makes me really sad. And it's always got to do with money. Can you clarify what you, just to make sure that our readers, listeners, I guess, understand it, what you mean by parentage testing? Is that just a... A a paternity test? The DNA profile, right, um, can be used as a paternity test, but that's also the form of DNA test that's used, say, in criminal cases. It's the, gets down to your individual genetic makeup, and then you can tell your uh, biological parents, you can do sibling tests, cousins, aunt, uncle tests, grandparent tests, things like that. So that's for close biological family and individual identity. That is the DNA test that a tribe or a First Nation will use if they use one at all. They do not use those genetic ancestry tests because those don't point point to uh, named specific ancestors. They point to ancestry very far back. That was definitely something that came up in the book a lot. And I think was something that, you know, (laughs) this book had a lot of things where it touched on facts about science that I knew, but because, you know, because of my job, I exist in this 
space of knowing science from an academic perspective in some ways and also from a pop culture perspective in some ways. And those there are places a lot where these two things clashed. So like that bit about the genetic ancestry testing really only showing you like these far back connections and not necessarily telling you about, you know, your great, great grandma. <laughs> that is, I think, stuff I knew intellectually, but hadn't really put together in an important way until I read this book. And it seemed like it was something that turned out to be really important for a lot of the people that Nelson was uh, interviewing because there were some people that were just like, yeah, I guess I'm related to this ethnic group in this part of Africa 40,000 years ago. And that really wasn't what I wanted to know. And I don't, that made me wonder a lot about like how, what, how useful how, that information is to people. Cause most of the time what we really want to know is about the relatives that we can conceive of in our narrative history, not necessarily the people 40,000 years ago. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I've watched a little bit of Skip Gates' show, is it African American Lives, I think. Um, you know, it's the, I, I, I guess I understand it's a little hard for me because I'm a Native American and I have this well-documented history and ancestry going back for so long in a particular part of what is now the U.S. Uh, so it's a little hard for me to understand wanting to reconnect to ancestry um, on another continent. Um, but what I've seen on that show is you'll have people who uh, will be will find out that they have markers that they share in common with, say, people today that are Zulu. And then they'll say, well, okay, so I'm Zulu. But did, did Zulu as a category, uh, as a people category exist back when their ancestors were kidnapped from Africa? Uh, their ancestors may be the common ancestors of people who today identify as Zulu, but people move around. Uh, their, their, their ethnic categories change. They disperse as peoples and coalesce as new people. So, so it's, it's, it's interesting when people say, well, I think I'm Zulu because I share markers in common with them that that's kind of a stretch um but but i i guess there's an investment in in having that kind of uh you know ethnic identity when one has uh this this terrible history of having had their ancestors kidnapped and you know brought over in chains so um that's that's very different than the way that i identify as dakota right i i was raised by a dakota mother grandmothers in a dakota community and yes we share genetics in common but i also have genetic ancestry through people who are today cheyenne and arapaho people who are today chippewa from turtle mountain in north dakota i have european ancestry um but my dakota identity which is my primary identity is because i was raised in in a tribal community like that so it's 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 it, there is genetics there, but that's not the basis of how we construct uh, that identity. So as I say, it's uh, it, it is um, I, I do have sympathy for people that do that, but it's also kind of a strange project to mm, me. Interesting, and I think and one of the things that does come up um, at the beginning beginning of the book too and throughout is this idea of you know people who were taken from Africa, brought over through the Middle Passage to be you know to become slaves in the U.S were then racialized. So it was the same thing like they were sort of forced they were forced to be racialized and their and that ethnicity was taken was taken away. So I think part of it too is you know there's a thread of we didn't even get into the thread of um of reconciliation, threads related to reparations. I mean it's a really fascinating it's a really fascinating look at all of these different issues that are 
that are being tied to something that feels highly technical. You know, it's a lot of these, it's tying all of these social, cultural, historical issues to DNA. And it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, so I think I would recommend this book to people. What about you, Maggie? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I would give the caveat that it is, it's well-written, but the style of writing is not pop culture. The style of writing is academic writing. Um, so if what you're used to reading is pop culture science books, that might feel a little weird to you at first, but it is well-written and it's fantastic. And it really gave me a ton to think about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for us today with Sparks. Thanks very much, Maggie Kurth-Baker. Thanks for having me. And special thanks to Dr. Kim Talbert for joining us today. Her book is Native American DNA. And she's at the University of Alberta. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Sparks, where we talked about the big ideas behind the social life of DNA. In the next episode, Maggie will interview Dr. Alondra Nelson. And stay tuned to your What's the Point feed for that. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan. Thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson was our editor. And thanks to Elliot Garnier for help with this episode. Kara Chin is our intern. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think. You can email podcasts at 538.com with comments or suggestions. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell. Thanks again for listening.